The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon and welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is not Leslie Marshall. I'm Daniela Gibbs-Leger with the Center for American Progress Action Fund. I am filling in for today for an hour for Leslie. We're going to be talking about politics. We're talking about Donald Trump. We're going to be talking about the ladies. Uh, it's going to be a great show. Uh, we want you to be a part of it. So please call us to join the conversation. 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Or join the conversation online at Leslie Marshall. Or you may tweet at me. At D Gibber one two three, so <laughs> Donald Trump, like <laughs> I don't even know where to begin uh, with him. He held a press conference yesterday, and it was perhaps one of the most bananas things I have ever witnessed as a political person. Um, he insulted pretty much everybody. Uh, including, I believe we have a clip uh, where he was talking about one member of the press who was sitting in a front row. I'm not looking for credit, but what I don't want is when I raise millions of dollars, have people say, like this sleazy guy right over here from ABC, he's a sleaze in my book, <laughs> you're a sleaze because you, don't, you know the facts and you know the facts well. Go ahead. I mean, <laughs> when, when has that ever ever happened before. So joining me to talk about this and many other things related to this election cycle, Benton Strong, Managing Director of Communications at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. You can follow him on Twitter, at Benton Strong. He's pretty funny. I'm glad you brought me in to talk about sleaze. I mean, I didn't make that connection. You like, just did that. I feel really good about that. Feel, <laughs> you just did that, not me. I feel, we saw a guy out in uh, uh, Franklin Square earlier today who we thought looked like Donald Trump, and we were just said we can't get within arm's length of him. I feel really bad for him. Under- Look, I, this is I, this is insane, right? This is like yes. this is. It, you could use the, I guess you could use the word insane to refer to almost everything Donald Trump says, but yeah. but uh, picking a battle with the media. When the media as a platform is the reason why you're the Republican nominee, right, does not seem like the smartest strategy. And, and you have to remind people that that you know we're having a conversation about what level of responsibility the media has for Trump being where he is. Mm-hmm. But the reality of it is is that for the entirety of his campaign, he's really played the media like a fiddle. They've offered him opportunities yep. because he's a legitimate candidate for president. I can't believe I just said it out loud. <laughs> so did 10 million Republicans, supposedly. Thanks, guys. Uh, but but he's then taken advantage of that. Yeah. And that's one thing that you know t- traditionally presidential candidates don't do. They pick and choose the kind of interviews they want to do mm-hmm. to have the best perception of themselves out to the public. And Trump said, look, I can say whatever I want to, so why not do every interview? Yeah. Uh, but but picking a fight with these guys is not a good idea because no. the last thing he wants is for more people to dig into him. That right. is not where he wants them to go. And if he gives them incentive to do that, it's bad for him. And the best, most recent example we have of that is what did he do last week when he insulted the judge who's working on a case around Trump University? And then a judge the next day came out and said, 
you're going to have to release a bunch of records, which Donald Trump obviously doesn't want. So right. that's not a good thing, for, a good tact for him to be taking. No, it's not. Am I imagining things? And that I feel like that press conference, there was like a shift in the atmosphere, right? Like you, you, you had reporters pushing back hard, like in that press conference, you had the stories coming out saying, uh, yeah, this check didn't come through until the Washington Post put out that story. You know, another one today talking about the Bob Woodruff Foundation, like getting them on the record saying, yeah, they called us last week and then we got a check the next day. Yeah, I think tomorrow when Chris Elizabeth puts out his worst week in Washington, it'll be Trump for the first. I mean, there's no question, right? right? And the 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 reality of, of the coverage that he's gotten this week alone uh, uh, this has been his worst week of the campaign, probably, mm-hmm. to be perfectly frank. You know, uh, there, there'll be a question of what kind of impact does this have out in the country. Right. But I, I think the most interesting thing that's come out of this, you just talked about the veterans situation and, right. the, and the, 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 um, the fundraising for veterans, right? He said he raised $6 million. He hadn't given his $1 million yet. He, right. It had actually only been $4.5 million. It actually had gone anyway. Uh, uh, he gave it to a foundation that's not that great from mm-hmm. a from an independent review standpoint. Um, but they found a way to get under Trump's skin, which was essentially to call him on doing something he said he was going to do. Right. And he he, if you look at him historically, this is his pattern: is that he'll mm-hmm. say that he's going to do things and then won't do them. Right. And he will just move on to the next thing and on to the next thing and on to the next thing. And so probably one of the most effective things the media can do is say, well, you said you were going to release the list of Supreme Court justices. Where is it? It took you three months. Mm-hmm. Right. You said you're going to release your tax returns. Haven't seen them yet. You said you were going to give a million dollars to veterans charities. You haven't done it yet. And that's really bothered him. And those are things that actually build distrust. Right. Mm-hmm. That's like the most basic level of trust is just do the things you say you're going to do. Right. And that would be bad for him if that's a, a meme that catches on. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to see if, you know, because the media itself has very short attention spans, so if they keep this up. Um, you know, I also thought it was interesting that for ever since the, the fundraiser, he was saying, oh, you know, we raised $6 million, $6 million are going to veterans. And so it ended up being $5.6 million. Mm-hmm. Well, if he's like this huge billionaire... Couldn't he have like written an extra, you know, <laughs> four hundred thousand dollars to get it to the six million that like he said that they actually raised? Yeah, I, do you, I, it was funny. Do you remember that fundraiser, right? Do you, <laughs> yes. I was in Iowa when that happened. Oh, you were, and and. I was there and, you know, in, in advance of the primary and we were there for the debate. And mm-hmm. then and I, I remember just thinking to myself, what in the world is going on <laughs> in Des Moines? This is the most activity Des Moines has seen like ever, even even in at previous primaries. And and it was such a spectacle. Mm-hmm. And it was like, how how do you expect that you're going to raise this money? You, like Trump's definitely going to write these checks. Like you're not going to yeah. raise this amount of money. And so it's in my view is actually not that surprising that he didn't do it. I think one of the most interesting things about him, you, you saw this conversation in the last week or so about how much money he spent on ads versus every other Republican right. candidate and how much money does he have to put into the race. Even if he were as rich as he says he is, he's certainly not as liquid exactly. as somebody might suggest because mm-hmm. his money is in real estate and that's not a liquid asset. Right. And so it, it, he's not going to go selling off his buildings to run for president. Mm-hmm. Even Donald Trump realizes that's about as dumb of a business <laughs> decision as you can make right this is you don't mortgage the house to run for president that's not how it works and so um uh and so the question actually for him really is how much money 
does he have to put into this race? And I don't think people think it's actually that much. And it, it, it explains why he has already gone in and decided to do a joint fundraising exactly. situation with the RNC. He will eventually be asking oil companies for money. He mm-hmm. will be just like every other Republican candidate. And so to your to your point earlier about will the media continue with the storyline, I think the answer is yes, because there will be so much material yeah. in which he said he was going to do one thing and did another that there's a lot of opportunity for them to do it. And the question will just be, are they going to get bored of doing it? Right. This is true. Join us in the conversation, folks. 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. So on his taxes, is he going to release them? I don't know why he would. I mean, I, I don't. Yeah, I know why he wouldn't. But again, I know everything about this election cycle is insane and bananas. But how how are we going to have a major candidate for president not release their taxes? And that's OK. I mean, how are you going to have a major candidate for president be Donald Trump? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 seriously, Daniel, I mean, how I it's not even that he's defied convention. I don't even think that that's. Many candidates in the past, Barack Obama defied convention. Yes. A black guy became president. Like, let's just I be, know. Right? <laughs> Hillary, let's be real for Hillary a Hillary Clinton is defying convention, right? right. I mean, I, mean it, I would say that the, the most conventional thing about running for president is that you're, like, wealthy and white and probably did something really bad in your past, and it didn't <laughs> matter, right? And so, it, in reality, like, there's – what is crazy about him is that he doesn't care that he's defying convention. Well, yeah, he doesn't care, but the voters don't care. Right, and and but I think the reason that they don't care is because he's not afraid to say, yeah, I'm not gonna like, I'm gonna do what I want to do. I'm gonna right. call a reporter standing in front of me a sleaze, <laughs> right? And so, I don't think he's gonna release his tax returns because I don't think it's gonna be good for him. I think it's gonna show that he is less wealthy than he says I he is. That right. he doesn't know how wealthy, in fact, he really is. Right. It's that he gonna, doesn't give any money to charity. Right. He gives very little money to charity, which is probably why this is very difficult for him to <laughs> to do. Um, uh, he probably, I mean, I, I can't make this because I'm not an expert on taxes, but I'm going to guess he's probably not even a billionaire, right? And so, but that'll be, a, but, but, but you got to get into the psyche of Donald Trump, which is that he wants to be liked yes. and he wants you to think that he is as great as he is, mm-hmm. as he says he is. Releasing his tax returns would undercut that entire message, right? Right. He will not be as wealthy as he says he is. He won't be as interesting as he wants to be. And he will not – he will kind of expose himself to all of the people in New York that he's never felt as good as. And that would be a big problem for him, <laughs> probably more so than losing the support of voters. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, there's a part of me that wants to hold out hope that this becomes a very big issue that, you know, could actually hurt him. But then there's the part of me that's like, well, we're here, right? And everything that he said and everything that he's done hasn't hurt him yet, so why would this? Eh, anyway, stick around. We're going to talk some more politics. We're going to talk about why New Jersey is the greatest state in the country, Benton Strong. It's in the country? <laughs> oh, rude. <laughs> You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. This is Daniela gibbs Leger. Give us a call at 888-6LESLIE, 888-653-7543. Stick around. We'll be right back. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Boss, 
in New Jersey. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Daniela Gibbs-Leger filling in for her this hour with the Center for American Progress Action Fund here with my buddy Benton Strong. Playing a little breeze because we were talking about New Jersey, as I mentioned before the break, the greatest state in the nation. Except for your state listeners, wherever you live, that's the greatest state. Um, Accurate. <laughs> so we have some primaries happening on <clears throat> Tuesday. Uh, I bring up New Jersey, not just because I love it and they have the best bagels and pizza, but also because isn't it true that depending on how much Hillary Clinton wins New Jersey by, that when those polls close, she could have sent up the nomination before California polls close? Yeah, I think that's right. I think she's close enough that if she you know, she wins a sizable chunk, I think it's 147 delegates mm-hmm. in New Jersey. And it's, it's funny, we were talking about before, for the segment, that the no one's talking about the fact that New Jersey's on Tuesday. No, not at all. Uh, and this is an important state, for a Demo- particularly for the Democratic primary. Yeah. Right? It, it, and it traditionally has, it's a little late, but... But it is the kind of state that is a good barometer of a Democratic primary because it has both the population of, of basically non-white people, mm-hmm. but a chunk of white Democrats yeah. who uh, who represent who look a little bit more like Pennsylvania mm-hmm. than some of the other states around there. And so, yeah, she could she could win a chunk, and she could she could wrap up the Democratic uh, uh, primary before the California numbers come out. But should she not do that, I think even if she were to split California with Bernie, she should be in good shape. Yeah. So I want to you know play this out a little bit. Different scenarios. Um, people have been talking a lot. Let's say she wins New Jersey, not enough to win the nomination outright. Uh, California is a split, or she loses by a little bit. Um, is there concern that, as some commentators on cable have been saying, she quote unquote limps into the convention? I, I'm an athlete, so I so I've been an athlete for a long time. <laughs> And I, I love sports. I don't think anybody cares whether you hit a walk-off home run and win by one or if you blow the opponent out. Like, <laughs> if you win, you win. And if you're a Democrat and Hillary faces Donald Trump in November, if she wins by 1% or 10, she will be president. It doesn't make much of a difference. Right. And if you if you ask, the only time in American history where that has not been the case was in 2000, <laughs> where it would have been great to have had a blowout. But right. but the simple reality is if you get more more delegates, you win. And in the Democratic primary, the way that works is delegates and superdelegates. That's right. how the process works. And in fact, I think there's an interesting um, graphic going around uh, social media over the last week or so that points out that actually if the Democratic primary worked in different ways, she'd be winning by more. So, right. oh, I, saw that. so mm-hmm. th- I think the reality is, is that it's a tough argument for Sanders to make that uh, if there were, you know, if the superdelegate rules were different, that he might be in a better place. That's not true. He's losing the popular vote. He's losing the state count. Like, it, right. it, like in, in no scenario is he winning. And so I don't think it makes much of a difference. And in fact, you could look at it as a positive that she goes in with a winning amount of support mm-hmm. and another person comes in with a huge amount of support that wasn't in the in the party before. Right. And so you could make an argument that the party is in a stronger position than it was at the beginning of the season. So that's the optimist argument. Um, the pessimist argument is that those people just don't like Hillary and they will not come on board and they're going to be those Bernie or bust people. Well, first of all, I'll say they're not saying that. It's more than 70% of these Democratic voters who are voting for Bernie Sanders who say that they will vote for Hillary Clinton. It's more than say they will vote for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump, in fact, is the one with the issue with getting his own party to support him. The RNC just lost its Latino outreach director because that <laughs> no, person didn't want to vote for that. Donald didn't want to work for Donald Trump. And their new uh, Latino outreach director is has a never Trump very ne- Exactly. Right. So <laughs> I, I, I think when 
when you look at it, that's more of a Trump problem than it is. And Trump, he had a good day because Paul Ryan's apparently going to vote for him. Yeah. I, I, apparently, Paul Ryan can't vote for himself in the in the Republican <laughs> or in the in the general election. But look, no, I think I think we know that this the most of the people who are voting for Bernie have said that they will vote for Hillary Clinton. We also you can't forget that Hillary Clinton already has more votes than any other person who ran for president this year. Yes. Um, and and I think when you look at the way that this works, it's a pretty similar argument that you have to make going into every general election, which is Democrats want to make it a turnout operation. Mm-hmm. Republicans want to limit the vote. And and the, the reality is that even if you only got a percentage of the new voters that Bernie Sanders brought in, that would be more voters than she would have otherwise had. Yeah. And that's a good place for her to be. This is true. Join the conversation, folks. 888-653-7543. That's 888-6LESLIE. Uh, I want to talk about voters for a second. Um, there has been some talk about Donald Trump, mostly by Donald Trump saying, look at all these people I'm bringing into the process. These are people who never voted before. They love me. Donald Trump's off a little bit today. Um, <laughs> is he exaggerating, lying, doing what he normally does, or is he actually bringing out some, you know, white working class voters who haven't been involved in the electoral process? And if he is, are they coming out in states where it actually matters in the general election? Well, the first thing you say is white working class and older white voters are the most likely people to vote already. So, <laughs> this is true. So the odds, <laughs> odds are probably – and the numbers early on in the primary showed that that wasn't an accurate statement, that it was not new voters who were voting for Trump. It was mostly people who had voted before. Um, and look, I think the, his problem is that for every new white working class voter who he brings in – and I want to just make an addendum to this comment real quick. I don't think that all the people, all the white working class voters who vote for Donald Trump are racist. I think yes. that's a big part of the conversation. I think they actually have a fear of some things happening in the country, mm-hmm. whether it's economic or whether it's just overall change. Yeah. Um, and they're flocking to this guy who's different. And that's a that's an understandable position to be taking. There's some other problems that Donald Trump has that makes it a little bit ish, of issue. But but I think for every one of those people that he that he brings into the fold, mm-hmm. there's a Latina voter or a black voter or a, a, a young woman who hadn't voted before or a young person generally hadn't voted before who are going to vote against him. And that's a new thing for American politics, the idea that you vote against somebody. Right. That's, that's unusual. Mm-hmm. But he could be that kind of candidate, and that's what Hillary Clinton is talking about in the speech she's giving right now. Yeah, and I was going to ask you a little bit about that before we have to go, about the foreign policy speech. And, you know, you're right. I think we're in a, this new world order where vote against this guy because he's terrible might actually work. Right. Thank you, Benton Strong, for joining us. This is Daniela gibbs Jay with The Leslie Marshall Show. We have to take a quick break. But in the meantime, give us a call at 888-6LESLIE. We want to hear from you. Stick around. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6LESLIE. And welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Daniela gibbs hosting for this hour for Leslie. Uh, please join the conversation. We are at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. You can also join us online at Leslie Marshall or me at dgibber123. 
So, I played that song for a reason, and not just because I like the Beastie Boys. Uh, the women, obviously, are going to play a key role in November, and not just at the presidential level, um, but also what's happening across the country in state races. Um, so, with us today, I have two fabulous ladies to talk about it. Uh, Rachel Thomas is press secretary at Emily's List. You can follow her on Twitter at Rachel underscore R underscore Thomas. <laughs> uh, and then Shilpa Padke, who is the senior director of the Women's Initiative at the Center for American Progress, and you can follow her or our team at Cap Women. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yes, can't wait. Yes, so we are not the only ones who recognize that women are important. Uh, the GOP, to the extent that we can say that, uh, they understand that women are important too. Um, in 2012, I think we all remember this famous line from Ann Romney. We have that audio. Mothers, we are the wives. We're the grandmothers. We're the big sisters. We're the little sisters, and we are the daughters. You know it's true, don't you? I love you, women. <laughs> Still funny. Still funny. Uh, <laughs> Fast forwarding to 2016, uh, the GOP nominee and one Donald J. Trump also has a lot to say about women. The women I think I'll do great with because, you know, I cherish women. I will be the best thing that ever happened to women. I I cherish women. I'm going to be so huge and so magnificent (laughs) with the women. So Trump's proclamation aside, uh, how do you actually see uh, the candidates um, doing with women? We're going to assume for a moment that Hillary Clinton is going to be the nominee on the Democratic side because math. Um, so how do you how do you see them both doing objectively? Look, I think, uh, you know, you played a clip from 2012 where we had the largest gender gap in history. Um, I think the Republican Party said that they needed to reassess, and what they came up with was someone even more extreme, a misogynist, a someone who you know goes out of his way to denigrate women, uh, and it's it's going to be detrimental for the Republican Party. Women will not stand with Donald Trump, um, and the, frankly, the rest of the party that actually agree with him on policies that are really dangerous for women. You know, it's funny, I forgot about the GOP autopsy, quote-unquote, that they did. It's like they got that, they read it, and they're like, we're going to do the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's right. You know, I think that women are offended by Donald Trump. I think he's offensive, and I think, you know, if you look at the numbers, I think I saw something that said about half of uh, GOP female primary voters, like, couldn't imagine voting for him, and that mm-hmm. his, like, unfavorable numbers are so high among women. So it's hard to see how any candidate sort of gets across the finish line, you know, without actually listening to what women care about. And that's not about looks, it's about making their lives better. Yeah, so what are the issues that will be motivating women to the polls as well? So I think it's, you know, issues that motivate women are not that different from issues that motivate men, right? They care about the economy. They care about jobs. Um, I think women specifically are focused on the wage gap that they face every day and know what that would mean in terms of the ability to take more money home um, and spend that money in the economy. Things, you know, we're hearing a lot about paid leave, paid sick Mm -hmm. days. Um, Women's health is front and center as usual. We were just chatting, Rachel and I were just chatting a little bit about Zika and and how lots of folks are are thinking about that and and how Republicans are really just obstructing in every way. And so I think women care about policies and they care about results and they're sick of being kind of being condescended to. Absolutely. And, 
you know, when you look at all of those issues, whether it's raising the minimum wage that disproportionately affects women, equal pay, paid leave, Republicans are on the wrong side on every single one of those issues. And it's really Democratic women who are the ones that are pushing forward and really bringing those issues to the forefront. You see Hillary Clinton talking about um, all of these issues every single day on the campaign trail. You see women running for the Senate and for Congress Mm -hmm. who are talking about how these issues have have they've experienced them themselves um and then you know you see um in congress and in the senate it's the women who are actually getting things done yeah you know i want to talk about zika for a little bit i know it's something here at cap that we've been delving into and you know both from a policy side and also people just sort of being generally freaked out about it and i'm trying to imagine Mm -hmm. donald trump and what his zika policy would be (laughs) like what what on earth would that look like and the fact that I don't think that he could articulate a policy. What is his paid leave policy? He hasn't said anything about paid leave, I assume. No, I I, no. yeah, I mean, I think on most of these issues, he's been relatively silent. Or he says, like, people should figure that out, work it out, work it out yourself. Um, yeah, you know. I think on, on equal pay, he said that women should just work, do as good a job as men, and they get paid equally. <laughs> And that's that is the mentality and mindset that he has about these issues that are really critical, not just for women, but for entire families. Mm -hmm. When a woman is a primary breadwinner, a co-breadwinner of a household, and she's making, you know, 79 cents for every dollar that a man's making, that's a huge income gap that that family doesn't have to put food on the table, to pay for college. And so these have real world implications that Donald Trump just does not understand. I mean, I also think, right, he's just so out of touch with the sort of daily lives of women. I think I just read um, earlier today some comments he made about how, you know, when he comes home, he wants dinner to be ready and waiting for him. Right? It's just like that just seems so out of touch with the lives that most families face today. Exactly. I saw that, and then I I quoted, like, did a retweet with a quote. I said, (laughs) me too, Donald. And it's, it's, (laughs) my my husband does all the cooking (laughs) in our house because if he waited for me to get home, we'd eat at midnight. And and it's just, I mean, to Shilpa's point, you know, he says that women shouldn't work, but a lot of women don't have that luxury. They don't have that choice. We're not all Melania, (laughs) you know. We don't marry a quote-unquote billionaire because we don't really know because he didn't release his taxes. Right, and that and that just completely goes to how out of touch he is with real American families. Yeah, I, I'm sure somebody has done research into this, but what what are the policies at his, you know, his properties, his company, like how, I, I know they talk a lot about sort of the upper echelon of women, the Trump, whatever it's called, but what about, you know, the people who are making minimum wage or slightly above minimum wage? Like what, I wonder what those policies are. And either they're really bad or it's, like, really good, which would be weird. (laughs) I don't think we know. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of his workers, my guess, are contractors, right? So it would be hard to figure out Mm. exactly what types of benefits they get. I'm sure we'll see more coming out um, on this. I think it'll be really interesting to see how he pays women. You know, there was some example, Rachel might know this better than I do, um, about the various campaigns and how women staffers yeah. were paid um, <laughs> mm-hmm. on campaigns. And I think one of the challenges are many of the Republican candidates just don't have women in high leadership positions. Right. Um, and so it's... Yeah, I think a story came out today that um, said that about 
75% of his staff is male. And and even with the women that um, work for him, there is a wage gap. And so not surprising um, based on the fact that he doesn't think these are problems. Right. Um, but again, it just goes to the type of mentality he has and the type of president he would be um, and how dangerous and detrimental, both economically but just um, in everyday life, it, it would be for women across the country. Yeah. Exactly. And in shocking but not shocking news, so Paul Ryan just said he was going to vote for Donald Trump. <laughs> shocking absolutely nobody. Like, who's he going to vote for? Like, the other guy who Bill Crystal put up and people were like, who is this person? And I want to talk about this a little bit when we come back from the break. Um, the problem that Republic, some Republicans are going to have in trying to distance themselves from Donald Trump. Obviously, Paul Ryan has made that decision as a Speaker of the House. He can't really do that. But what about everybody else and people who are running for office? And, you know, how are they going to remove the stench that is Donald <laughs> Trump from the GOP? This is Daniela Gibbs-Leger filling in for Leslie Marshall. We will be right back. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. with the Center for American Progress Action Fund filling in. Join us at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Fun fact about that song, when I was in high school, I spent a summer in France, and there was a bar... Oh, maybe I shouldn't say this story because I was in high school still. Anyway, there was a bar that we used to go to, and they used to play this song every time I walked in. It was awesome. That's amazing. It was France. Everybody drank. Um, we're We're talking about women and politics. I am joined by Rachel Thomas and Shilpa Padke. Um, I said I wanted to talk about Donald Trump. I mentioned before the break that Paul Ryan, not shocking to anyone, has said he's going to vote for him. And I just wonder, you know, you see some Republicans saying that they're not going to go to the convention. Uh, I don't think not showing up for a four-day party is going to be enough to separate you from the, you know, the head of your party, basically. So I want to get your thoughts on, you know, how intertwined are Trump and the GOP? Do you see an effect down ballot? Do you think it will help with the Senate, um, maybe even the House and like state races where, you know, state legislatures are going to be really important because we're coming up on, you know, a census year and redistricting and all of that. So, Rachel, start with you. Yeah, I think it's absolutely going to have an effect down ballot, um, you know, across across the ballot. It would be one thing if Republicans either running for Senate or Congress or whatever office um, were standing up against Donald Trump, but they're either being silent or they are lining up behind him. And on policy, they actually agree with him um, when it comes to pretty much all the issues. And so they really, no matter what they try to do, no matter how silent they try to be or, or you know, run away from questions, um, they can't get away from the Donald Trump shadow. Mm-hmm. 
There are some, um, Rachel, I'm curious about this. You know, there are some members of the Senate that are in tight races that have said that they're going to not go to the convention, right? Like uh, Senator Ayotte, New Hampshire. Do you think they're, like, how long will this last from your perspective? Just curious. Well, again, you know, the the convention is only a few days. So, um, <laughs> but Kelly Ayotte has... Um, has said she'd support Donald Trump. And, you know, she got in into, uh, you know, a little bit of hot water when she said, okay, I'll, I'll support him, but I'm not endorsing him. It's right. the same like, thing. It's the same right. thing. <laughs> right. So if you're going to vote for him, if you're going to support him, um, if you share the same policies as him, you you are in, this is Donald Trump's party now. Um, and she is really feeling heat from that. She's basically tied with Maggie Hassan, who has been, um, you know, on the right side of so many of these issues and is standing up for New Hampshire families and especially New Hampshire women. Um, and so, you know, Kelly Ayotte is is really feeling some heat. You know, there's other um, there's other senators, too, who are in uh, in trouble, like John McCain in Arizona. His race is very tight, um, surprisingly, I, th- I think, to a lot of people. Um, and, and, you know, it's because of this Donald Trump effect and, and also what we're seeing in, with the Supreme Court, too. Is there are there any races or one particular race that that you're nervous about? Uh, I mean, I think we can't take anything for granted. I think the presidential, uh, we what the what Republicans did in the primary was uh, they were not serious about Donald Trump, and we are definitely taking Donald Trump serious. Um, we have to do everything we can to make sure that people come out and vote and know that their their vote matters, especially young people, um, especially women. Uh, that everyone knows the stakes in these elections. Um, but I think when you compare Donald Trump to Hillary Clinton on, you know, name any issue, there is such a clear contrast about who is actually going to fight for for American families. So I want to talk a little bit about young women. Um, there have been, oh, so many think pieces mm-hmm. about <laughs> the generational divide during the primary and why, you know, young millennial women are feeling the burn and, mm-hmm. you know, are burning or bust and aren't interested in Hillary Clinton. I don't believe that it's as stark as any of those wonderful think pieces said uh, that they were. Um, but I'm curious about from both of you, you know, what you think about, is there a generational divide? If so, why do you think that is? Um, and what can sort of be done to bring it back together once uh, the nomination is officially wrapped up? I think it's interesting. I think, um, like always, there are some generational divides. You know, um, Secretary Clinton has been in the spotlight for a long time, and so people have different perspectives of her, probably just based on when they knew her, whether it was right. as First Lady or as Secretary of State or as Senator. But I think at the end of the day, when you are a young woman or a middle-aged woman and you're thinking about protecting the right to choose, you're going to make a, a clear decision. Um, when you're thinking about wanting to have affordable child care, you're thinking about getting paid the same as a, a man. I think that those contrasts will be so much crisper than anything else we've sort of had to talk about and, and sort of discuss and the punditry has given lip service to up until now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, a lot of young women don't really know Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if you're 18 and this is the first time you're voting, um, she wasn't, you know, in office. Right. She was in office 10 years ago. You were eight years old. Um, <laughs> and, and, so, and uh, it you know, as Shulpa said, there has been so many attacks on Hillary Clinton for decades. Um, but when when people 
hear Hillary's stories and when they hear the fights that she's taken, um, you know, for women and for girls across the country and the world, um, you know, they like what they hear and they know that she's going to be the one who's going to stand up for them as president and and push these issue, issues forward. You know, I think mm-hmm. um, in terms of, of issues that matter to women, she she hasn't just been, you know, a solid vote like Bernie Sanders has on on democratic issues, but she's really pushed issues like equal pay to the forefront, um, like, you know, equal opportunity for women and girls. And that's what I think we need. Mm-hmm. You know, I was talking uh, with Betton, our colleague, uh, in the last segment about, uh, or maybe it was during the break, about do is there a concern because a, a up is down and, you know, right is left in this election and nothing mm-hmm. makes sense anymore, uh, that with Donald Trump, that there's people like he's such a clown like there's just there's no way that this person can become president so i don't need to activate or i don't need to do like the hard work that was done in 2008 when we were like electing you know the first african-american president like there's just no way that hillary's gonna lose to donald trump like do is there that fear out there absolutely and you know that's what our job is at emily's list to make sure that people know that um, their vote is power and and that they need to go out and exercise that power on election day. Um, We are doing a huge push to uh, communicate and educate millennial women because they could make up 20% of this electorate. The millennial voting potential voting block is larger than the baby boomers for the first time. Um, But women can't just turn away. We can't just turn away from Donald Trump. We need to exercise that power and turn that power into votes. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things uh, that we are really focused on is lifting up the voices and the stories of women of color, whether that's black women, Latino women, Asian American women. Um, They are especially under attack right now, I think, um, from the conservative movement. They are disproportionately impacted by all of these sort of working family issues, Mm -hmm. and they can stand up and make a huge difference electorally. And so I think... Um, there is a lot at stake, and I think especially, you know, as you mentioned with Ryan and others sort of getting in line, yeah. people will start to get more nervous than they probably have been because it has felt like such a joke up until now, and now it feels dangerous, I think. Absolutely. And, I mean, to Shilpa's point about women of color, when you think about in the Senate how there are no there's never been a Latina mm-hmm. woman, right. and we're talking about issues like immigration reform, mm-hmm. having, mm-hmm. which is, you know, mainly women affecting women and children, having that voice of a Latina woman at the table would be so important. Um, and that's why, you know, we need to win the Nevada Senate race <laughs> and get Catherine Cortez Masto <laughs> in there um, because she brings that perspective that isn't there and has never been there. Yeah. Um, Anne-Marie on Twitter, you know, we were asking what are the issues that are most important, and she listed reproductive rights, economy, climate change, and then experience and record are also very important. And, you know, when we talk about the issues and these policies, I always have this concern with Trump that you're never going to quite be able to pin him down because he's going to come out and say that he's for something and then the next day he'll walk it back. And so how do you know which, you know, which thing to hit him on or which one is real? And I think like that's. I think part of it's that that's just the way that he is, but I also really do think that that's some sort of strategy. So I don't know if you have any closing thoughts on that. <laughs> it's just my I paranoia. Mean, I would disagree. I think about it all the time. It, it's hard to run a sort of traditional campaign against a candidate that you have has no real record on policy, that you have no idea what they stand for, that they flip-flop every, every minute, not to mention every day. Um, 
But I think what will be interesting is we'll start to see the people he surrounds himself with. You know, towards True. the convention, we'll start to see what a VP nominee looks like. That person mm-hmm. will likely have a record, and it will be super clear um, the type of governing uh, that he would do, I think. Absolutely. And while he doesn't have a record on policy, he does have a record on, you know, uh, offensive and horrible <laughs> statements. <laughs> this so, is true. Uh, that does kind of show where, where his mindset is. I think those ads are going to be brutal. Thank you both for joining me today, and thank you all for listening. This has been Daniela Gibbs-Leger, guest hosting for Leslie Marshall, who is coming up next. Stick around. Thanks for joining me.